There's been a number of amazing things that have happened on this trip. One of them is a deepening realization that a lot of the church globally does not live in a culture that is friendly to the church. We have expectations that in our context here, that our government would pass laws that are friendly to the church. We have expectations that at the end of every year, our treasurers and the church ministries and different things that we are running with would give us a receipt that would allow us to deduct off of our income tax and benefit us. That's not common. That's not common to have an environment that is church-friendly for the bulk of the church globally. It's only our experience here. So, and then I was thinking about that and contemplating what that really meant historically. The church started in the city of Jerusalem and the upper room when 120 were baptized by the Spirit and started to speak in tongues and go out and witness with power and with authority to the kingdom of God in the culture of a Roman-occupied Jerusalem. It was very intense, and it was not friendly. And that's where the church started. The church continues, and like I said, in many other contexts, you know, I was in Cyprus, and Cyprus is divided between the Greek and the, uh, the Turkish side, with a very solid border in between, and a no-man's land. And then from there I went to Jordan, and Jordan is a kingdom with a somewhat friendly king to the church. He actually, his mother was a Christian, and uh, he favors uh, working with Christians in a peaceful way, but it's still a Muslim nation. In the midst of all of that, the church has to exist. So my question to us in, in the context of all of this is in the kingdom living in a foreign kingdom, and we are living in a foreign kingdom, no matter how much we think of Canada as being historically influenced by Christianity, we think of the West of being, you know, a, uh, a group of nations, Europe, North America, South America, a group of nations that have been influenced by the gospel and uh, the, the church's positive impact has been visible throughout the West. <coughs> In the midst of all of that, we're still living in a foreign kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are all over the place. Canada is run by a worldly kingdom. We pray for righteousness in our leaders. We pray for righteousness in our government. But we are not a Christian nation. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if there is such a thing as a Christian nation biblically. I know Armenia was the first nation to declare Christ as its head. That may be a different thing. But as a, as a nation, I don't know if a Christian nation exists today or ever did. Politically, there's room for that. That's a different conversation. So the question that I have for us today, are we called to survive or are we called to thrive? A lot of times we think, you know, let's just push through, survive, And then when we get to heaven, what a glorious day that will be. And that seems to be the undercurrent a lot of times in the way we function and the way we think. You know, I'll push through, I'll survive, but someday in heaven, someday in heaven. But the Lord taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. And that was our theme this morning in prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come 
on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of times we have misinterpreted that to mean in the very far future. But he said that the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. So how do we live in that, in that uh, tension of survival versus thriving? And I've shared with you in the last couple of weeks, Rob, myself, we've both uh, taken a stab at uh, things from James. I shared with you about what James was talking about as far as what the wisdom from heaven looks like. The wisdom that comes from above, from heaven, is first of all pure. We talked about that. We talked about it being peace-loving. And what does it mean to be a peace-making people? Peacemakers sow in peace, reap, who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And we're called to do that today, not in the kingdom to come, in the age to come. We're called to do that today. Rob uh, spent some time in focusing about considering it pure joy when you go through persecution, when you go through challenges, when you go through different types of trials. That's our current state. We're walking within that. And last time I was sharing with you, I focused on this chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 27, uh, excuse me, 29, verses 4 through 7. And how God was speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel who were now displaced from the kingdom of Israel where God was supposed to be king. Yes, they had earthly kings. But in the midst of that, their kingdom was now no longer theirs. They were scattered. They were living as we are today in kingdoms that are not godly kingdoms necessarily. As a matter of fact, their case, they were living under a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a godly man, who had set things up for idolatry. People were supposed to worship a statue of him. In the midst of all of that, Jeremiah writes to the Israelites and tells them that when you go to the places that I will carry you, God is carrying them. In other words, nobody is somewhere randomly. Every one of us are where we are supposed to be, according to God's plan. You are here in Toronto or in the GTA because God has brought you here for some reason Redemptive reason both for your life to be redeemed and from your life with the society that you're functioning within to be redeemed. So that's the context of what Jeremiah writes. And he says to them, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That gives us a very strong indication that Jeremiah, hearing from God, receiving these words, is not thinking survival. He's not thinking you've been carried off as exiles. You're now hostages, if you will, to a foreign king, subjects to a king that is not the plan of God, original plan of God. But within that, you're not simply to survive. You're to do much better than survive. You're to have impact cause a positive shift to happen within the society that you're in and be people that thrive, seek its prosperity. As it prospers, you too will prosper. Survival and prospering are not the same. They're, as a matter of fact, the opposite of one another. Survival is just eking in existence and making it through, and then we made it. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, do well, survive, Build houses. So in the context of all of this, I'm going to show you a little video clip that, help, that helps us understand biblically what survival or thriving looks like in the context of being subjects to a foreign kingdom.
In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice. But they do it nonviolently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles. But don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime. But then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall, and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. 
Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So we live in a tension. A tension between loyalty and subversion. The book of Daniel is a great illustration of that. One day I'll, I'll show you the video for Daniel, but today I want to just highlight a couple of things and we'll focus on the life of Daniel. And in Daniel, in the first portion of Daniel, we find that he's actually linking us back to our purpose in creation. When God created humans, he created us in the image of God and he created us to be able to rule and subdue the earth and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right back from when Adam and Eve were first, were first planted on this planet and created out of the dust of its earth. That was our mandate. That remains our mandate. However, sin came in and sin continually causes us to grow in rebellion within our hearts and we grow into this thing that we become like beasts, just hungry for power. Whatever that context is that you live in, you find yourself struggling with power between yourself and others, even between yourself and yourself sometimes, definitely between yourself and God. All of us struggle with this power struggle. All of us are contending with this thing. So when he talks in the video, when they're talking about loyalty and, and subversion, there is the tension that exists between us and, and within us. You know, one of the things that I don't know if I shared this with you, I don't know where I've shared this. I've shared it many times. One of the resultants of my surgery was that they've expanded the, the width of my hip by about an inch. The hip bone, where its socket, it's connected, that portion that they have replaced with metal, where there used to be bone, is now wider or longer by about an inch. I discovered this one day when I was going to the washroom and I turned into the, the washroom. It was dark. It was night. I know my house well enough that I can travel through it or walk around it at night in the dark because I've lived there for so long. But as I was walking in this one day, I happened to clip the wall just ever so slightly. I guess it was taking a sharp turn. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm with the doctor and he tells me, oh, by the way, when we did the surgery, we expanded the length of your hip the top of your hip bone or your, your femur so that there is, because there is no ligaments and muscle and, and tendons that hold it because it's metal, it's not bone, we've used the muscles in the area around the hip to act as the tension that keeps the joint together. So the Lord speaks to me. He goes, in life you'll find yourself many times in tensions. There's tension all around us. In our relationships, there's tension between what we want and what we have. There's tension between the ideal of our life, the purpose that we feel God has created us for, and the tension with that which we are currently living. There's tension between us as people. 
There's always tension. Is that tension a bad thing? We can make it a bad thing, but the reality is the tension is what keeps us thing, everything together. So my hip is kept together, not because I have ligaments and tendons that are holding the hip together, but I have muscles now that are acting as elastic bands that are stretched out a little bit in tension so that they can keep it together. So it's the same with what we are experiencing in loyalty and subversion. So I want to define those words a little bit for us. So let's just skip ahead. So <clears throat> some of the things that we find, that the advice that uh, Jeremiah gives us in the scripture that I put on there earlier, from uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, he says, and, and we find this in illustration in the way that Daniel lived his life. And this is a model for us to know how to live our lives in the current context that we are in, in a kingdom that is not yet the kingdom of God. You know, I'm going to open a bracket here. In the scripture we read that there is uh, a truth, a promise, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. Right? That's a promise. It's, it's not yet. But I'm going to ask you a question about that. Which kingdom are you currently in as children of God? Which kingdom are you really a citizen of? Are you a citizen of a kingdom here in this world only? I know many of us here are Canadian citizens. Some of you have dual citizenships. I happen to have a citizenship in Egypt and Canada. So I'm part of those kingdoms. I'm subject to those kingdoms. If I go to Egypt and they want to exercise the fact that they have ownership over me as a citizen of Egypt, they can exercise that and the Canadian government can do nothing about it. I have not given up my, my Egyptian citizenship. But even if I have, the fact that I'm born in Egypt gives Egypt the right over my life to do what they want to do should they should so choose to. Canada, we have a lot of privileges. We never think of the responsibilities in the way that we should sometimes as Canadians, but we have responsibilities to our Canadian nation. So as citizens, we have obligations and privileges, responsibilities within the nations that we're in or the kingdoms that we're in. But as Christians, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we're also citizens of another kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. So we're citizens in both. But the, the promise is that the kingdoms of this world will all become subject to the kingdoms of heaven, the kingdom of our Lord, and they will become the kingdoms of our Lord. Think about that for a moment. So that is a promise to come. But as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord today, you have the obligation and the privilege to enjoy the full measure of everything that is within that kingdom today. You don't have to wait for it to come. You can exercise your right to receive everything that God has for you today. The promises of God are for yes, they are yes and amen for today. Healing is yours today. When Rob was praying earlier during the communion, there was a moment that he got choked up a little bit because we were talking about, he was praying about the, the reality of that kingdom affecting us here today. So we are citizens of this kingdom. We are ambassadors of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And within that reality, we now are, are, are forced by virtue of the fact that we live in a world that has not yet become the kingdom of our God, we live in a dual citizenship. We live in a tension between the kingdom of heaven 
and its glory and its fullness and all the goodness that exists in heaven with God that is yet to come to earth. But yet we today, we exist in the reality of the kingdom of heaven today. If you're a child of God, you are a citizen of that kingdom of God. If you have received grace by God's mercy and your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus and you enjoyed the communion that we just had a minute ago, you are testifying to the fact that you are a citizen of a different kingdom. A kingdom where there's no accusations. Maybe there are accusations, but they're groundless. Of corruption. The kingdom where there is no accusation of manipulation or, or power struggles. We're hearing a lot about that today in our government. And we pray for our prime minister that the Lord will minister to him through all the pressure that he's under right now. If he's done wrong, God have mercy on him and help him correct it. If he's not done wrong and there are false accusations, God still have mercy on him and strengthen him to be able to stand against all of that. We're not pointing the finger and saying he's guilty or he's this or he's that. We honor him. We bless him as our prime minister. We expect that he would rule in righteousness. Not only him, but all the ministers around him in the cabinet and the caucus. Every minister of, uh, every member of parliament we pray for. From the queen on down to the smallest person in authority, we pray for because we're subject to them. And we're told as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to bless everyone that has authority over us. So when Daniel is facing all of this, close bracket now, going back to the history. When Daniel is facing all of this, he was a prince in the kingdom of Israel. And he was taken and the king Nebuchadnezzar instructs his men to find young princes of both the nations that they've taken captive, Israel in one is one, is one of them, and within his own kingdom, and train them up and teach them all the learning and the language of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon. So these are some of the contexts of what's happening. So I'm going to show you just a few, just jump through the history and discuss what has happened and how it went through. In the case of Daniel, he wasn't alone. He had three other men with him, men that we have learned to call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are Babylonian names. They're not the Hebrew names. But these men had been instructed. They had been taken. The, command, the king commanded the palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the family, royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defects and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom. They had what James talked about, all kinds of wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, earthly wisdom, natural wisdom, demonic wisdom that James talks about. These men had possessed that kind of wisdom and insight, knowledge, and uh, endowed with knowledge and insight, incompetent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature, the learnings, and the language of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. Part of their daily rations was amazing meats. Ribs, pork ribs, sausages, pork belly, all kinds of things that had to do with things that not, were not necessarily kosher. But God had given Israel its laws and its dietary laws. They were not allowed to eat, for example, pork was one easy one, right? Pork wasn't kosher. But they weren't allowed to eat some of the shellfish either. Different things that had been restricted to them for, for cleanliness, for, for them to remain pure before the Lord. What's wrong with shrimp? What's wrong with crustaceans? What's wrong with uh, lobster? Well, 
they were considered to be the cleaning animals of the ground of the sea. And as such, they were eating things that may not have been healthy. And God, to prevent Israel from coming into the disease and other things, because at that time they didn't have the wherewithal to handle all these things, excluded that from them and allowed them only to eat animals that were quote-unquote clean. So now these young men are facing a situation where they're being instructed for three years before they can appear before the king, and they are told that there are certain things that they can't do. And they have to do certain things. Verse, six and Dan- or verse 8 in Daniel 1, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. You and I are facing all kinds of situations in our day-to-day life where we're put into contexts where if we submit to some of the ways that the world does its things, you and I would be defiled. In business, in education, in every aspect of life, there are things all around us that the world system has ingrained itself with that would be defiling to the reality and the truth of God. So this situation was what Daniel was facing. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel, verse 9, to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. So let's go through. Daniel uh, resolved to serve the king of Babylon. He had no choice in the matter, but he willingly submitted himself to the process. He resolved to, to do that, and he started to get fit and to work within the system and the culture of Babylon. He was seeking Babylon's well-being. He was, yet he was critical of some of the things that Babylon was doing as far as idolatry, uh, arrogance, and injustice. But they did that nonviolently. When they were asked to bow for the, to the statue, the men said, no, we will not bow to anyone but God. They drew a line in the sand. And then later we find that they were remaining faithful to the fullness of God's laws and resisting the influence of the Babylonians. In other words, they were walking in loyalty, and yet they were walking in subversion. What is loyalty? Loyalty, according to Wikipedia, and it's interesting that, you know, on a Sunday morning we're using Wikipedia as our source for definitions. Wikipedia says, loyalty in general use is a devotion and faithfulness to a nation, a cause, a philosophy, a country, a group, or a person's. So he was demonstrating devotion and faithfulness to the king Nebuchadnezzar within the context of him being a captive person. He decided not to rebel. When you go to the cities that I'm going to carry you, seek the peace and the prosperity of those cities. As they prosper, you too will prosper. So what is subversion? Again, thanks to uh, Wikipedia. Subversion means... A process by which the values and principles of a system in place are contradicted or reversed. They will not submit themselves to the values of bowing to a statue made in the image of a king. They will not submit themselves to doing that very thing, but they are committed to its transformation. (coughs) They are committed to function within the system to see the system changed. They're not stepping outside the system and saying bad system, like you and I are right now within the system of Canada's world, 
We are stuck in some situations. We have no choice but in some situations. Sometimes our children attend schools that are teaching them things that we may not be in agreement with. You may be attending university and being taught things that you don't agree with. But you work within that system. You don't stand outside it and throw rocks at it. You work within that system and you bring about transformation. So what are the ways of the exile? We saw a few things that uh, the video talked about. Some of the ways... Daniel and the boys refused to eat the food of the king. They were taught the learning and the language of the, the capture, captors. They entered the preparatory period. They're, they purposed in their heart not to be defiled. And the Lord had brought Daniel to have favor. How did the Lord do that? Was it just a supernatural zapping of the servant of the king that Daniel would all of a sudden now have favor with him? I don't think so. I think it was the observation of the man and Daniel. What he saw with Daniel, how Daniel conducted himself in honor of the king. He wasn't destroying his rep- the king's reputation in any way. He would honor the king in everything that he did. He worked within that system. And the Lord granted him favor. Now the word compassion in the Hebrew here is actually very interesting. It's the same word in Hebrew, the word is raham. It's the same word for having mercy on someone, but it's also the same word for the womb. Right? How many speak Arabic and know what the word raham means? Okay. It is literally womb. Okay? So the word for mercy, the word for compassion, is the same word in Hebrew as the womb. So what happened in this context was that a womb was created for Daniel to develop as an infant, as it were, as a baby, as a fetus, in his relationship to the king Nebuchadnezzar. And in that context, as he matured, something was getting ready to be born. And you and I are in the exact situation every day of our lives. We are placed in a place of a womb. In that womb, there's a lot of challenges that come against the baby being formed. But yet in the womb, the mercy, the compassion of the mother and how she cares for that baby, that baby develops to the point of it being born. So you and I are facing the same situation. We are constantly placed in situations where we're being formed to be birthed. So the goodness of God, the compassion that is around us can develop through our actions. Being, being as simple as babies. You know, the kingdom of God belongs to the children, right? Which is what Jesus said. So as we walk as children, pure, innocent, and gentle... In every way, there's a womb that happens around us that forms in compassion and allows us to manifest the glory of God that he has put in us through the situations that we are facing. The way of the exile. Daniel used all of his gifts, his ability to hear God, his ability to interpret dreams, He used all of that to the advancement of the king's domain. Not for Israel to advance at the cost of the king. He used it to build up the kingdom that he was subject to at that point. Not his own kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom of Israel that he was applying all his gifts and his talents. And he also worked to spare the lives of the enemy agents. Within the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, there were sorcerers and wizards... And they were doing all kinds of spells. And they were doing all kinds of things. And they were working to destroy Israel as a matter of fact. But yet when the opportunity was there for Daniel, he worked to bless them 
in the interpretation of the king's dream. The king was ready to kill them all because none of them can discern the dream and its meaning. But Daniel comes along and he praises the king and he says, There's no one like you, O king. God grant you long life. And he causes the king to spare the lives of all those that were there. He works to bless the enemies. So how do we exist in that context? How do we function within all of that in our everyday life? How do you live that way? How do you live in this tension that is constantly around you between knowing the principles of the kingdom of God, hearing God's voice, not knowing how to conduct yourself in the pressures of the situations that we're in? Well, uh, James actually gives it to us in this way. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask and God will give it to you. We are placed in a situation where we are walking out this tension of loyalty to the subject king, the kingdom that we are subject to as citizens of another kingdom. We're walking out this tension of loyalty and subversion. And it requires a lot of wisdom to be able to walk that out. And it's not wisdom of craftiness, of humanity, and our experience. It is strictly the wisdom that comes from above that we need to be able to tap into. Now, that's all fine and dandy for us who are big, older. How do you deal with that with your children? What do you do with your children when they're subject to pressures in life and school systems that are teaching them the wrong things according to your understanding and your biblical interpretation? Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I suspect that that was the truth that Daniel's parents functioned under. Daniel's parents, when he was but a young boy, took him to the synagogue, had him learn the required lessons as a little boy, that by the age of 13, he probably went through his bar mitzvah, and he was prepared so when the pressure came and he was no longer subject to the kingdom of Israel and living within the, the society that was peaceful to him, all of a sudden he was immersed in a society that was foreign and different. He had enough of a base that when he was subject to that, when he was older, he never departed from the way that he was raised. He knew how to remain kosher in the food that he ate. He knew how to remain honoring in the, in the authorities that were above him. And he knew how to represent God, the God of Israel, in the midst of a nation that was idolatrous. So you and I have a situation. A few weeks ago, we had a retreat here where we had Lisa and Miguel Sanchez come and share with us how, through a dream, she saw three seeds that she had in her hand, her three boys, and she had to plant those boys into soil watched the seeds die in the soil before they sprouted out and gave life afresh and they became their own plants in the context of their own school system and how they blessed the school. So we're in this tension constantly. Do we trust God and the truth of his word? Do we trust God for our lives? Do we trust God for the next generation? Do we step into that place where we expand and live in more and more of attention so that we can see the glory of God shine in us and through us. And I submit to you that the challenge is not beyond our reach. We have been equipped with the Holy Spirit. We have been filled with him. We have been partnered up with him so that we can live the fullness of what he's asking us to do in our day to glorify God and to see the kingdom of heaven impact our society in every way. So you have an opportunity today to say yes to God all over again. You have an opportunity to come to God and say, look, I don't know how to do all of this. 
But I do realize that I live in a foreign kingdom as a citizen of your kingdom. And I'm asked to yet reflect you in the midst of the darkness that's around me. And he will use you as light and make you shine very bright. Let's all stand and pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word is right. You are faithful to your word in every way. In every generation, Lord, you have manifested your glory through your children, those who are part of your kingdom. And generation after generation, it has come to us today where we are required to stand as citizens of your kingdom in this foreign kingdom of the the lands that we live in. So, Father, we honor all those authorities that you have placed over us. And we ask you afresh to equip us with wisdom, to fill us with your spirit, and to give us means and tools to be able to reflect your glory, to live in honor and loyalty to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Even when there are men and women over us that are unrighteous, to honor them, to bless them, to bless the image of you in them, and to bless the purposes that you have for their lives. And to equip us, Lord, to be able to reflect your kingdom's glory in our context today. Father, bless us, each one. Bless us with your fingerprints all over us. Bless us with your character reflecting and oozing out of us. Guide us individually and corporately as a community, Lord, to reflect your glory. That the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of our Lord, would impact the kingdoms of this world even before they become the kingdoms of our Lord. We bless you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.